Welcome to MedCast, the podcast from MedTie, the Maryland State Medical Society. Each episode, we'll be doing a deep dive into medicine and taking an insider's view on issues facing Maryland's physicians and patients and healthcare more broadly. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Rockauer. Today, my guest is Dr. Clarence Lamb, a public health physician with Johns Hopkins and state senator from District 12, serving Howard and Baltimore counties. Welcome, Dr. Lamb. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm so happy to uh, to have you here. Although I have to ask you just off the start, you know, with you know two jobs as both being a uh, physician and state senator, which do you consider is your your primary role? I still consider myself a physician, um, and I think it's important not to lose sight of that, particularly as a physician legislature, or sorry, as a citizen legislature, rather, it's important to still kind of stay connected to your roots and to uh, bring your perspective and your experiences to share with the greater body in the General Assembly. And so, you know, I try not to lose sight of, you know, where I came from and the background and the experiences I carry with me to share with our colleagues there. Wonderful. Well, let's start. Let's talk a little bit about your background. Tell me where uh, you grew up, where you went to medical school. You, I know you have a, an MPH. So, um, you know, tell us about some of that. Sure. So I was born and raised in Allentown, Pennsylvania, it's where my family still live. Um, oh. And I went to college at Case Western Reserve University out in Cleveland. I was actually a, a double major in biology and political science. Biology because I was mm. a recovering chemistry major after organic chemistry. Um, <laughs> and as most of us know, pre-med is not a major. And so I needed a, a, another major in its place. And so biology kind of came into being. Political science was always more of my personal interest, really enjoyed that piece. Could have gone two very different directions with that, whether it's a law school or medical school, still decided to go to medical school, um, I think, um, to the satisfaction of my parents, and uh, came to Maryland for medical school at University of Maryland. Um, and uh, while I was there, I took a year off between second and third year to work at a biofencing tank called the Center for Biosecurity, which was affiliated with University of Pittsburgh Medical Center at the time, now affiliated back with Hopkins. Um, and now called the Center for Health Security, working on things like hospital preparedness, uh, uh, public health preparedness, biodefense, bird flu was big in at the time, um, and that type of work. Um, and then in fourth year of medical school, when we have a little more elective time, I actually took um, all my elective time and put it together and worked on Capitol Hill as an intern under Congressman Henry Waxman for a while. Um, so I was there for a couple months, really enjoyed that experience. Decided to specialize in preventive medicine, which is the specialty of public health and, and population health, um, and really hope to be able to stay in the area. Both University of Maryland and Johns Hopkins have a preventive medicine residency program. So um, I did my residency training at Johns Hopkins, and during that time is when I met um, Delegate Dan Morheim, who at the time was the only physician in the General Assembly. And... Uh, also decided to see what it was like to be kind of in a state legislative role. And so to bookend my experiences on Capitol Hill, 
under Congressman Waxman. So um, for time, I also was serving on dance staff um, in Annapolis and completed my residency training at Hopkins, stayed on as the chief resident for an extra year, and then as assistant program director of the residency program, and now as the program director of the same residency program. So it feels a little weird because it feels like I've never left the residency program, but I'm like a PGY, you know, 13 or 14, just kind of <laughs> switch roles within the residency, you know? <laughs> so you've been a occupational health doctor at Johns Hopkins, and we've obviously been through a very major public health crisis over the last few years. What was it like directing an occupational health and public health system uh, in the Hopkins system during the pandemic? That's a good question. It has been a wild ride during the pandemic. Um, occupational health is a very close cousin specialty of preventive medicine. So preventive medicine has three kind of subspecialties within it, one of which is general preventive medicine, which is what I'm boarded in. Another is occupational medicine, and then the third is aerospace medicine. Um, occupational medicine is usually a pretty quiet part of the health system and, and of most hospitals um, because it's not revenue generating. It's usually a cost center. Um, but obviously during a pandemic, it's incredibly important to be able to keep your healthcare workers healthy. Um, and so it was a real challenge. I think we kind of take occupational health for granted, except during a pandemic when um, there were a lot of challenges of being able to keep our healthcare workers safe um, and making sure that they had the proper PPEs. You know, putting together the entire isolation protocol for those who uh, may have contracted COVID, quarantine protocol for those who may have been exposed, setting up a vaccination program from scratch, never having, you know, had to do this before in this kind of manner and, and um, speed. Um, and then everything down to even a, a vaccine mandate for our healthcare workers. How could we put that together in a way that's fair and equitable and took into consideration people's circumstances? Um, you basically had to take the entire occupational health playbook, tear it up, and start all over again in the pandemic. And um, it was uh, quite the challenge because Hopkins also has six hospitals across three different jurisdictions in Maryland, D.C., and Florida. And a lot of these jurisdictions had their own role, too. And so you had to, um, you know, navigate the complexities of some of the state regulations and policies that could be very different in Florida, for example, than they were here in Maryland. Um, oh, yes. Florida is very definitely different than Maryland. <laughs> That's certainly true. So it was it was quite the challenge. I would not wish it upon anybody, but um, the position was vacant when the pandemic first started. So to step up into this role, which I did while still seeing patients and while still managing the residency program, um, it was like walking into a firestorm. Um, and... It was just a heck of a two years that it's better to see in the rearview mirror than. Do you do you think we're over it now? I think we are through. Obviously, some of the worst parts of that. I think this coming winter, we'll see how it turns out. I think um, I've been generally a little bit more pessimistic than most people, um, but last winter probably didn't end up it could have been, um, the likelihood that we will overwhelm our healthcare system is, is fairly low. And so, you know, 
because of that, if our goal is to not just um, prevent um, infection, which is really, really, really tough to do in its kind of aspirational way, but if our goal is to not overwhelm our healthcare system, I think we will be okay this coming winter. And then after that, this may so. become just something that we have to, this will become something that we have to live but it may be something where we... Right. I think they used to call that flattening the curve. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, did, did the hospital lose, you know, a lot of physicians and nurses and uh, other healthcare workers in the hospital during all this? And how was that, uh, you know, how was that a stress to the system? Hospitals had a lot of healthcare workers that fell ill. Um, but what we've been able to find, at least in our health system, and I think this is applicable across the board as well, is that most of the healthcare workers that contracted COVID did not contract it from the work environment, that we had a lot of very good and strong protocols in place to protect our healthcare workers working in clinical environments. And most of the time when they contracted COVID, it was exposures that took place outside, whether at, you know, events or activities that they were going to, um, you know, going to the grocery store and whatnot. And also household contacts were, um, you know, a, a high risk um, exposure if someone else in the household also contracted COVID. Sure. Now that we're mostly through the uh, pandemic, uh, what do you think uh, will be the challenges for public health in the future? I think now that we're through the pandemic, um, one of the challenges that I think is really confronting public health right now is that the public has a, a gut reaction towards public health that's not positive. Um, and, mm. you know, I think before the pandemic, people kind of took public health for granted. They were kind of neutral on the topic. They're like, oh, yeah, they administer vaccines. They, um, you know, help folks that don't have health insurance, et cetera, et cetera. Now, when you say public health to people, people have a gut reaction that's, oh, you're going to make me mask or you're going to require me to get vaccinated or you're going to tell me what to do with my body. And, you know, I think it's going to take some time for us to kind of get past that negative reaction towards public health. And I think we as public health leaders have um, a tall order ahead of us to try to, um, you know, to try to help um, bring the public back to an understanding of public health as something that helps our broader community and helps everyone together um, and move past like the negative response that people now generally have when it comes to this issue. Yes, and, and around the country, uh, there are uh, many problems with public health uh, uh, workers and uh, uh, you know physicians and uh, et cetera who are getting you know physical threats and et cetera. I was in a webinar last week with Dr. Peter Hotez from um, Texas, mm -hmm. uh, you know, discussing all of these things and people getting very angry about public health issues you know it's not a, not an easy job yeah it's certainly not an easy job we saw the baltimore county health commissioner had um, vandalism that took place behind his house we had the montgomery county the former montgomery county uh health officer um you know received threats and um uh were, were verbal kind of threats on his voicemail and by email um you know it's really 
fraught for a lot of these health officers these days who put in a lot, a lot of time to help protect their communities from the pandemic and now have to also face these kinds of um, circumstances in this kind of tense environment, it's going to wear out a lot of our public health um, um, personnel. And that's the other concern, too, that um, a lot of the workforce is retiring and is facing um, shortage already. You know, this only exacerbates that concern that we see with our local health departments. Sure. And can we change this through the legislative process? Um, How can our elected officials help with all this? I think when it comes to our elected officials, there are two things that they can do to help. One is to help the public understand the value of public health again. To my original point, you know, public health relies on that first word in the in the subject, which is the public, that if the public doesn't accept or buy into or recognize the value that a local health department brings and is trying to implement through programs and services that they're offering, then it's not going to be very effective. What elected officials have are a little bit of a bully pulpit and a little bit of an audience to be able to, in their small way, um, persuade the public to trust public health again. Um, And so that's one piece. The second piece that I think elected officials can really help with is funding, that our local health departments have seen um, reductions in funding over the last two decades. And this is even here in Maryland, where, um, you know, the state budget is not in as dire straits as other states. But even here, our local health departments have seen reductions in funding. And, um, you know, you can only do so much with Um, fewer resources, right? You can only squeeze the orange so much. And I think we squeezed our public health um, agencies and our local health departments dry, especially over the last two years of what they've had to go through. And I think what elected officials need to do is to reinvest in our public health infrastructure, that's personnel, that's programs, that's um, support, that's services that they need. Um, We need to put that funding back in there so that we can rebuild our public health agencies and departments. And, you know, you're in the committees that uh, uh, help provide some of that uh, funding. I assume that uh, you're out there uh, fighting uh, every day for us and for the health of the public. We are, yes. Um, there are very few physicians in the legislature, just myself and Terry Hill on the in the House of Delegates. And we understand the value, and we've been trying to point that out to our colleagues. Um, and we are fighting very hard to try to um, not just um, level fund public health, but as I mentioned, we need to rebuild public health, and that means actually increase their funding. So um, you can count on the fact that we are continuing to work and advocate for that. Funding for this podcast has been made possible by Mid-Atlantic Medical Collection Services. Mid-Atlantic works with your patients to help them understand their bills, review charges, and consider repayment options. When it's easy for patients to make payments, they're more likely to pay you and pay you sooner. That's the Mid-Atlantic approach. To find out if Mid-Atlantic can help you, email collections at mamcs.net. Funding for this podcast has been made possible by Unity Insurance, a full-service insurance agency specializing in solutions for the healthcare profession. Since 1975, they've been providing solutions to meet the needs of physicians like you. Learn more at Unity Insurance 
www.ghostbusters.co. What advice might you have for physicians who want to run for office? You know, there's only two of you in the in the legislature in Annapolis. Uh, what can we do to get more people? Well, we need more physicians in elected office. Um, it's a hard climb to try to explain to our colleagues sometimes, um, you know, not only the value of public health, but the difference between a physician and a nurse practitioner on what they can do and what others can't do to explain um, our health insurance system, um, why there are still health disparities and health inequities. Um, and having more physicians or folks that have a science or medical background serving in the legislature will help make this an easier case for other colleagues that don't have any background in these areas. Um, it is difficult to run for office. I've got to you know, say that having run successfully through two elections. But, um, you know, I think, you know, MedKai is supportive of folks who want to run and can provide advice and support. You know, Delegate Hill and I are also supportive of any colleagues in the medical profession who want to run and can provide that advice. It takes a lot of time. It takes, um, but it also is very rewarding. Um, I think many of us have been in clinics and hospitals where we get frustrated sometimes with forms that are coming down the pike or policies that are hard to understand or requirements that the state puts in that you just scratch your head wondering why was there not more input here. This is a chance for physicians to be able to bring their perspective, bring their experiences, and to serve in these positions where you can weigh in and make a difference, not only in these policies, but also in the communities that you serve, right? If if we recognize that there's um, much more that plays into um, our patients' health beyond just what happens within the walls of the clinic and the hospital, that there are these other social determinants of health that are really critically important to how um, our patients do and their well-being, that we can influence all of those social determinants by serving elected office. And that's why we need more physicians there. I would be remiss if I didn't put in a plug right here for uh, the AMA and uh, AMPAC's uh, 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 public health uh, or public they have a schools, campaign school, campaign school yeah. um, that uh, teaches physicians and or their families uh, how to run a campaign, uh, what to do when you're in a campaign, if either you are in it yourself or uh, helping somebody. Uh, were you always planning to run for office? I was not, actually. I always thought that I would be more of a policy person working in the background um, as a legislative advisor or health advisor or health director. Um uh, health policy director for another legislator elected official. Um, and so this was not my intention. I kind of um, uh, laughingly um, and lovingly point to Dan as having gotten me involved in elected office, um, you know, eight years ago. But, um, you know, I think it is very meaningful for, for a physician to be able to serve in an elected seat um, because you actually do have the ability to weigh in on all these policies and not just rely on other folks to tell you what to do. Um, that you really get to bring your perspective to um, shaping policies and programs and services that affect all of our communities. And that really is really rewarding. Uh, for any doctor that ever said there ought to be a law, you know, this is how we do that. Uh, either to go to uh, Dr. Lamb or uh, uh, Dr. Hill. Um, so your other hat is in uh, medical education. 
you're teaching residents. I assume you're teaching students. Uh, how has the pandemic changed all of that? And where do you think things are going in the future? So I train other preventive medicine residents in, in our specialty. And certainly with the pandemic, there has been a greater focus on public health and prevention. Um, and so we've seen more uh, residents um, apply to our programs, express interest in the specialty. Um, it's really challenging, I think, for medical education when um, the last two years have been so taxing on, um, you know, clinical practice just generally that a lot of faculty members are tired, they're burnt out. Um, we see a lot of clinicians that are just exhausted from the last two years. And so I think, um, you know, what you see reflected in the broader, um, you know, clinical provider population, that sense of just tiredness and exhaustion from the pandemic, I think is is going to be challenging for medical education because we're so dependent on academic medical centers and faculty who have been through the ringer over the last two years. Um, so, you know, I think medical education has tried to be nimble um, in being able to um, be flexible about rotations and maybe um, increasing more exposure to things like telehealth that we've seen more in the pandemic. And I think we'll continue to try to move in that direction. But um, I think medical education has a lot of challenges coming up ahead. And um, when you layer on top of that, the fact that we're in a provider shortage, we have an aging population, and that gap between the number of providers needed and uh, the population that needs care is going to grow. Um, you know, we have our hands full. Um, there's an election coming up uh, in November, and I certainly wish you lots of luck uh, in that, but assuming uh, that you're successful, uh, what do you see as some of the major issues in the upcoming uh, legislative session? I think one of the major issues that we're going to have to look at is kind of the tail end of this pandemic. As things are wrapping up, um, we have seen our local health departments and particularly our state health department, the Maryland Department of Health, depleted through the last three years. Um, they have brought in a lot of contractors, for example, um, and consultants to be able to um, help the Maryland Department of Health with organizing programs and services in response to the pandemic. As these contracts wind down and the consultants and contractors are unbolted from the health department, I'm concerned that you know our, our state local health department will lose capacity, that there are a lot of folks that have experience in responding to the, to the pandemic, have experience in working in establishing important and core public health programs that um, because they're not formally part of um, a state department or agency because they're consultants or contractors that were brought in that um, will lose a lot of experience that was gained during the pandemic too. I understand why they were brought in. You know, our, our health departments, whether state or local, were already stretched before the health, uh, before the pandemic had started. And so they, the current people that were working there, the personnel working there, didn't have the capacity to expand and work on pandemic-related response efforts. And so they had to bring in a lot of contractors and consultants in to staff that up. But my concern going into this is that with our state and local health departments already depleted, they're going to be taking away resources um, over the next year or two as the pandemic winds down that will lead to the loss of a lot of experience in our state and local health departments. And I think that's something we need to be really um, concerned about. 
Okay, this has been fascinating. Let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, what are you currently reading or watching or listening to? So I am a bit of a news junkie. And so most of what I read is news, whether it's the New York Times or The Sun or The Washington Post, just to say conversant. I think that's the other challenge as an elected official is that you have to say knowledgeable about what's going on in the current environment and in current events. And so um, I have not had as much time to read as much as I would like. I think the last book that I read was a book on redlining in Baltimore City. Um, so kind of the history of how, um, you know, due to some unfair, you know, housing practices, different neighborhoods were carved up in Baltimore City. That was the last book that I read. Um, but most of my time is really just kind of staying on top of and, and consuming local um, news. Thank you to Dr. Senator Clarence Lamb, who has been our guest on MedCast, a podcast from MedCai, the Maryland State Medical Society. Tune in next time as we continue our conversations with the leaders of medicine in Maryland to discuss issues facing physicians and our patients. For all of us here at MedCai, I'm Dr. Stephen Rockout. Thank you and goodbye.